Hello, I'm Dana Brooks of Facing Brooks Law Offices, and you are back for another edition of the Empower Hour brought to you by the Empower Plan. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Empower Hour brought to you by the Empower Plant by Facing Brooks. I'm Dana Brooks, and I'm joined today with my law partner, Kimmy Hogan. Welcome, Kimmy. Thank you so much. Hey, and I've got Kia Thomas back. She is our PR director. Welcome back, Kia. Hi. And we have got an incredibly wonderful guest. Um, So many of you probably know her or, or have at least heard of her. We've got Jana McConaughey today. So welcome, Jana. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Just don't make anybody have to spell your last name. That's really <laughs> yeah, I want you all to recite it for me by the end of this hour. <laughs> I can't spell it. I, I know how to do it, but it, luckily my phone recognizes it. I guess it's one of those words that's said enough that, that we can cough it up and have it spelled correctly because I was dictating something about you earlier. But uh, welcome back. We have so many mutual friends, um, all of us in the firm. Uh, you, um, you're, you've got a pretty recognizable name around town. Um, tell us a little bit about, a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, um, uh, what you do and how you got to be who you are now, a, a elder law attorney who helps people navigate some parts of their lives that are maybe a little more difficult and not so much common sense. So you, you help a lot of people, but tell us about you. What's your story? Yep. I grew up here in Tallahassee, born at Tallahassee Memorial, Um, Went to public schools, graduated from Leon High School, uh, left, went up to South Carolina to Furman University for undergrad, then over to Nashville for law school at Vanderbilt. Um, Started my practice in Nashville, then moved back to Tallahassee and did insurance defense work, uh, which was fine. It was okay. Um, But I felt a need to have a practice area where I actually felt like I was helping people and making a difference. And I felt like I needed a little more um, personal satisfaction from the work that I did with my days, Um, which you guys probably get doing plaintiff's work. You get to work with individuals. So I know you know what I mean. But um, so I started doing pro bono work with uh, guardianships for folks with developmental disabilities and uh, just slowly kind of started taking baby steps over to doing something different. And then about the time that my daughter was born and she's 19 now, I decided to make the jump full time to to doing elder law. And uh, so that's morphed into a lot of estate planning and started my own firm 15 years ago, I guess now. So, um, so there you go. There's the brief story. Okay. Wonderful. I can't wait to delve into this because when people hear the term elder law, they obviously think of older people, but I don't think they understand truly what all that encompasses and how it can be relevant to a lot of people in different life stages, not just older people. Um, Kimmy, I wanted to ask you, you're a lawyer and you deal with people who have experienced personal injuries. Sometimes we do need to deal with people who are involved in estates and estate plannings and that sort of thing. Um, now that we've got this expert available to us, <laughs> what, what kind of questions are you thinking about? Because it's always been very vexing to me to practice in an area outside of kind of my very narrow you know, area. So I'm always, I feel uh, much gratitude whenever we bring people into our fold who are experts in things that we don't know. So what do you think of when you think of elder law and your experience as a personal injury lawyer? Well, so the way that I mostly run into attorneys like Jana um, is when I represent folks for wrongful death cases, and we need to get our clients set up as the personal representative of the estate. And so they need to be uh, designated as the personal representative of the estate by the court so that we can pursue a, a claim in their name in a lawsuit capacity. So that's usually whenever that happens, we call an estate attorney, an elder law attorney, and we have them handle that for us. Um, But I have a lot of questions for you because I, you know, at my age, I'm 36 years old. I'm married. I have two kids. I have a three-year-old and an almost six-year-old. And I know that I need estate planning documents because what I... What happens if something happens to me? I know that Florida is a state where if you don't have anything, all, I believe all my assets transfer over to my husband. 
I would think if I were, that's what I know from law school, right. is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what you remember from studying for the bar exam. <laughs> exactly right. But, you know, things can be more complicated than that. Certainly something could happen to me and my husband at the same time. And then what happens to our assets? Who takes care of our kids? You know, Jan, I'd love for, to have you talk about someone in my situation. What would you recommend? What type of estate planning documents should I have? Yeah. yeah, with people your age, Kimmy, right, it's the kids that we care about, because you're right, you know, if something happens to you or your husband, individually, unlikely, you know, but if it does, the assets will flow to your husband, you know, either directly via beneficiary designations or co-ownership, or more complexly, if we if we need the complexity of an estate, eventually the assets will get to him. But the concern is, not that the assets wouldn't get to your kids if something were to happen to you and your husband together, but that they would get to them at 18. And these beautiful children who you love and want to grow up to be productive members of society would get too much too soon and have the guidance that you would have given them if you had still been around. So folks come in at that point in their lives, number one, to make sure we set up a good plan for the assets and the handling until you've got adult children who have the ability to handle what you've left them. And then two, for the, to establish guardians. So you've got the right people raising the kids and you don't have a fight amongst family members and perhaps the wrong family member ultimately having the guardianship uh, duties. And I don't know about you, but it's funny, you start out thinking, well, these are the people I'd like my kids to go to. And then your kids are born, you see how other people are parenting, and then it changes wildly, dramatically, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, God, no, not that, this is what I want. So anyway, it's, it's good to have it in writing. It's helpful from lots of perspectives. Well, another yeah. question I have. I'm sorry, yeah. go ahead. Oh, I told you I had a lot of questions. <laughs> oh, another question I have, at, at, you know, being in the point of life where I am, so my in-laws are moving up to Tallahassee to come live closer to us. And they're getting up there in their age. Um, and so I'm thinking, what things do we need to make sure that they have? And also, um, medically speaking, you know, what happens if something happens to them and they would want us to make those medical decisions for them? What's kind of that checklist of what we need to make sure we're in a position to take care of them if we need to? Yeah. yeah, that's right. And even for you, I mean, the, the lifetime documents like a power of attorney so that someone can make financial decisions for you would be important to have like for your in-laws if they were to lose capacity or even if they didn't lose capacity, if they just wanted your assistance with uh, their assets and then healthcare directives. Um, without something in writing, Florida does have a hierarchy of the folks who can make healthcare decisions for us. So your husband would be someone who could make decisions for his parents if, if necessary, if there were no documents, but you would not be. Yeah. So to the extent your in-laws want you to be involved, um, putting that in writing is very important. And then there is no hierarchy for things like signing checks or signing contracts or making financial or fiduciary decisions. If you don't put that in writing, you end up in court in a guardianship mm -hmm. to get those types of rights. So both are important for people your age, my age, a couple decades later, you know, your in-laws, maybe even beyond that, um, because something could happen to any one of us, but for your in-laws, probably more compelling to get in and get that done. And one thing that comes up sometimes I'll have my clients call and they'll say, my family member is declining rapidly. I need to get a power of attorney signed so I can make decisions for them. And I, first of all, I go, I'm not an elder law attorney. I can't advise you on this. You need to talk to these folks. But um, can you talk about the importance of having these documents done ahead of time before yeah. you need them? Yeah. I don't want capacity to be an issue. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. A lot of people, it, if you see a power of attorney that works in Florida, they, they are required to be very detailed. Every power that you want someone to exercise has to be in the body of the document. You have to initial several different places for it to be fully effective. And when people see that, it's scary because it's a really clear recitation of all of the powers that you're putting in someone else's hands. 
And under Florida law, it's effective the moment you sign it. So, you know, my husband's my agent on my power of attorney. He could use it to go clean out our accounts and run away. He's not supposed to, you know, but it's hard to unshoot a gun and take back what he's done. But the fact of the matter is, if I don't do it now, if my clients don't do it now, and then there's a loss of capacity, it's too late. So you have to get folks over that hump to sign it while I think you were saying, Dana, while they've still got the capacity. And it's hard because a power of attorney, you have to have even more capacity than you need to sign a will under Florida law. So it's a really high level. It's a contractual level. So anyway, you got to catch people uh, early. I have a question on that. Um, Do you litigate that when it comes up or do you... um like send that to the trial lawyery type people? Because I would imagine that is a point of contention, uh, capacity, you know, did you know what you were doing at the time, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah. I would also think it was, it would be something that's disputed in a very uh, highly temporal context. Like uh, we can't drag this out for six months. We need a decision and we need to go before a judge right now because they're about ready to do some end of life measure or, you know, um, uh, delete some account or, or, or deplete some account or something like that. How does that actually get thought about? That's what I mean when I say litigation to our non-lawyers people. That means somebody's throwing down and we're going to legally fight about it. Yeah, I do not litigate those things. I am purely transactional. So I send it off to people who know courtrooms like you guys. But there are um, there are certain statutory sections that do allow you to run right into court if there's a uh, possibility of exploitation occurring. There's emergency guardianships where you can lock down um, the person's assets. So there are absolutely remedies if there's a suspicion that somebody either is using a power of attorney that wasn't executed by somebody with capacity or is misusing one that's a perfect power of attorney. And that certainly happens also. I've got so many more questions, but I want to um, make sure, um, Kimmy, I'll circle back to you on some more of yours. Kia, what about you? You got a family. (laughs) This is why people don't understand. This is not just for, uh, you know, people who have elderly people going on in their house. It's not, plus everybody does. Everybody's got somebody older person in their life. And it's not just for the uber rich. You know, this, this is something that affects, and because I have a personal story of somebody who tried to help, you know, recently, and their whole family was turned upside down. It was the most gut-wrenching thing to watch these people experience the end of uh, the last days of their loved one's life and having to fight tooth and nail with somebody over it. But have you had any experience with this, Kia? Are you thinking, is your, are your wheels turning like, oh, my goodness, I better get my house in order before this happens to us? Absolutely. Um, haven't, I've had the experience with it in regards to when my grandmother passed. Um, my mom kind of, in in a sense, inherited a lot of things. And then it kind of makes me think about an inheritance backlash. And I'll go into that of what I mean. Um, but, you know, you start accumulating things that you're like, all right, now it's mine. But then she sits down and she's talking to her kids and she's like, don't sell my house or how little. <laughs> make yeah. sure that you guys hold on to this, whatever it is family. that needs to be done. So we're having those talks now, and I think it kind of takes me back to a couple of things where you see so many GoFundMe, you know, when things happen to someone because people aren't prepared and they forget to think about the the life insurance. And then also, like Kimmy was saying, getting those documents in order. Um, But those are a lot of things that the community I know is starting to put out there so that people understand you shouldn't be waiting for a GoFundMe. You have to be prepared. And I think you telling um, Jenna the world about, or, you know, our public about what they need to do. I think it's great. It took me as a PR professional, it took me into risk management. And then I also went to that Netflix movie. I care a lot. I don't know. Yes. If you've seen that. Girl, I'm writing it down. I but care. I'm looking for a new show all the time. Ooh, I am not a religious person, but I was so happy about the ending. And then I immediately had to go and repent. I was like, Lord, please forgive me. So <laughs> <laughs> I think my biggest, well, I have plenty of questions. Um, but the first question, going back to the inheritance backlash, 
Um, and what I was meaning about that is kind of sort of when you have clients that come in to discuss with you about the split of inheritance or gifts from parents. Um, I think when things aren't in order, you start wondering, do the parents really want to leave that type of legacy behind? Like this is the last thing that happens and now you have this split. When people come in to talk to you, do you talk to them about making sure that those things are in order and or just advising our public, what should they need to be getting in order so they don't have that inheritance backlash of, you know, this is my legacy. And now this one event is what I'm remembered by, by the whole family, because I forgot to get everything in order. Well, or, or it could split the whole family based right, on a decision right. and nobody was prepared about it. I, I mean, I literally know people who, after they buried their mother, never, never talk again. again. That's because right. of a decision she made that they were not aware of or prepared for. And it right. just totally divided a family. Yeah, that's a great question, Kia. Yeah, it is a great question. Yes, we do talk about that. Uh, we talk a lot. You know, Dana, you were mentioning a family who wasn't aware of what the matriarch was doing, it sounds like, with the assets. So we talk a lot about transparency. You know, it's not always a good idea and you certainly don't have to tell anyone what you're planning to do with your assets. That's your own business. And I'm a pretty strong believer in, you know, your kids aren't entitled to anything necessarily if you've raised them, you know, you, you do what you want to with your assets, but we talk about transparency when that's prudent. And then we also talk a lot about Kia, to your point, you know, putting things in writing. We talk a lot about um, under Florida law, what, what busts up families, what I've seen, and there's nothing like the hate that siblings have for each other. Oh. I've never, I've never seen anything like it. And I love my siblings and we're good, but in this practice, holy moly, that woo, people will hold on to that and they'll hold on to it. You know, you got mama skillet 20 years ago oh, and yes. I was supposed to get that. I had to argue an open court over a skillet once. So oh, that's yeah. true. But yeah, so so we talk a lot about stuff. You know, what are you going to do with your one wedding ring? What are you going to do with the family china? Although nobody wants the china anymore. But and you can leave a list. You know, if you've got a will, you can leave a list and say my diamond ring to this person, my antique car to that person. And we talk a lot about if you will do the hard work and make those decisions. People might be upset when you die, but they might not be upset with each other. They're upset with you and you're dead, you know? So like give them that gift of making hard decisions so that they're not left with a fight and a mess because you weren't willing to make the hard calls during the time. So, Uh, you know, it it was funny when I was in law school, I considered uh, family law and somebody said the uh, fastest way to get murdered as a... (laughs) lawyer is to practice family law. And they said, I'm not talking about divorce. I'm talking about get between two siblings fighting over something their mama. Those people will lose their minds. Those people will shoot up an office. Now, obviously that's hyperbole because you don't hear about it very much, but you know, you know of which you speak about that. Those, those people, because it's not really the damn cast iron skillet. It's, it's a piece of her. It's every time we had Easter and Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I saw her cooking that and I ate from that and her mother gave it to her. And it's a, it's a legacy piece. It's not a damn cast iron skillet, but uh, people make things, things uh, have value that is not really rational. And so you're some, I mean, a lot of times, probably not sometimes you're probably often dealing with very irrational wants, needs, demands, um, how do you handle that as as a counselor, as a lawyer? How do you how do you handle it whenever everybody's coming at you, and you know you know what the person wanted, but you're they're fighting with you? I mean, do you ever get embroiled in that sort of thing? And how do you handle it? I mean, it's hard. I wish I had a great answer to that. There's a lot of I get conflicted out, you know, a fair amount of times. If my client wanted something and the folks left behind want something else. Um, you have to, the ethics of this practice or, you know, I know in insurance defense, not that I wasn't listening, but we had to check off the box for ethics, you know, hours for yeah. CLEs in this practice area. I mean, people do extra hours. You're, you spend a lot of time documenting and thinking and consulting the ethics hotline. You know, I don't know how often you guys have had to call that, but oh, 
you guys we call are. we call i mean not not like every day at all but you know when we get into something that's not exactly what we do mm-hmm. uh, and it usually is something like uh two people have an entitlement to a distribution or something and so if they can't agree you know between themselves who gets what do we have to leave the whole thing or we conflicted out of the whole thing it, it is sticky and i and i really wish people understood how seriously lawyers take that right no exactly. one's going to give up their livelihood their bar card to try to you know, give one client 20 grand more than the other. It, it, that's not how it happens. People are pained. Lawyers are, are ethically pained to do the, the right thing and they want to do the right thing. So many times it ends up costing more money because you do have to back away and everybody has to go get their own attorneys if they want to fight it out. And it runs up the cost and, and people, then they get mad at the lawyers. Oh, you damn lawyers. You know, you're the reason why everything costs so much money. But it's not that. It's because we really are trying to be as ethical as we can and consider all points of view and make sure that we are not serving, you know, two or three masters. Um, I wanted to ask you something that has to do with online forms, you Mm -hmm. know, um, legal Zoom and this sort of thing. People want to download their powers of attorney, their wills, this sort of thing. This came up to me recently. Someone reached out to me and wanted me to help because they had a um, sibling who was in end of days uh, in stage organ failure. And uh, another sibling had given up their entire, you know, career livelihood to take care of, of the sibling and be their caregiver and everything. And the sibling had downloaded, the person who was in end stage had downloaded some documents expressing what they wanted done. They were not lawfully executed in accordance with Florida law. And at the, at the 11th hour, this person's estranged spouse, they never got around to officially getting divorced, shows up and starts running the show. Says, uh, no hospice, no hospital. Don't let those uh, other siblings have access to this person. I am still mar- uh, married to this person. There is nothing, there's no document saying otherwise. And I want them off life support. I want them, you know, I don't want them to be able to live, die in their home. I want them to take it to a hospice house. Let's get this going. Um, and so the family, they're like, listen, I don't understand what the problem is. It's very clear. He wrote down what he wants. And the problem was not, it didn't have any legal effect. And it was the most heartbreaking thing. And they were just, you know, they're, they're, they're in crisis. This is, you know, they're burning serious daylight, you know, valuable time they'll never get back. And they're having to spend so much of it talking to lawyers and my heart broke for them. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, that family in theory, could have run into court, tried to get an emergency ruling, but I mean, that's a couple days wait time to get it here. And your loved one is dying. What are you spending time on? That's exactly right. right. Yeah. Yeah. I hated that. Um, What do you tell people who, well, here's the other thing too, is I'll I'll hear this all the time because I had this experience. (laughs) I wanted to go and get a will and all this kind of stuff done. And what I wanted done was one thing. But the lawyer started going, well, if you're going to do that, you need to do this. And it grew into this really big assignment for yeah. me. And yeah. I was like, man, and then I lost interest and I got busy. <laughs> and I got so yeah. now, now I, I, little, I have one heir because I'm, I'm single and I'm an only child um, and I've got one daughter mm-hmm. who's a grown woman. But I would not want her to have all of that because I know everybody else is going to come out of the woodworks for her. Right. They'll be like, oh, you came into some money, you know, and, and she doesn't have the life experience right. yet to be able to discern the good people versus the ones who are really trying to take advantage of her in a, in a uh, vulnerable state. But yeah, it got to be a really big excitement. So what I did, I just got a folder in my office that said, if I die, give this to Whitney. Oh, God. <laughs> it's like all the You're one of those people. Can't talk to her. At least we know now. No, I'm ashamed. I'll probably. We're not talking about that, right? It's just terrible because you're you're like I just wanted you know to set this up, and then a prudent lawyer like yourself is going to say, well, you need to do this and you need to do this, and then the next thing you know, my mind's blown. What do you tell grown ass women like me who still (laughs) want to you and take your advice? Scare me, scare me. Yeah, I mean, you know the parade of horribles. I don't have to scare you, but the um. I mean, I will say that we learned several years ago that the way to handle folks who are busy and get overwhelmed, I mean, you have like what decision overload. I was just reading an article today, like you make decisions all day, every day. God knows the last thing you need is a whole other set of decisions to be made and things to be done, which 
you really can't help if you're going to do it right. So we, our practice is once you've shown up, once you've come to that initial meeting, like we don't let you go. Like we set the next meeting while you're there. We set the meeting after that, yeah. you know, like, yeah. and we do it for that exact. It's like some, the mafia. Yeah. It sucks to talk about dying. It sucks to talk about the parade of things. What if your daughter yeah. died before you, what would right. you do? You know, you have to talk through that. Um, so once you've started, it's, it's easier just to rip the bandaid and get it done with the promise that if you'll just stay with me, you don't have to think about this for years. Yeah. But that yeah, don't no, no, you got to do it. You got to, you got to engage that grown up center of your brain that says, be a lawyer for yourself. You know, yeah. stop, stop That's doing right. it only for other people be a lawyer. Cause I really would not want to burden my daughter with those sorts of things. Um, and my parents, I love my parents, but they, their um, situation is not quite the same as mine and they don't have the experience with dealing with a lot of the things that they would have to deal with if they were trying to plow through my estate. Right. So, right. Um, you know, I do try to tell her, you know, don't put your eggs in one basket. Don't put all your money with one investor, you know, have a couple of lawyers. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, thanks mom. <laughs> Well, one of real, the real sagacious that... advice. I appreciate your wisdom. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see here. Kimmy or uh, Kia, what do you want? I've got so many questions. I don't want to hog the time. But well, but, I had more Kimmy, to talk about. Kimmy, I think I cut you off. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so one thing that I'm thinking about while we're talking about elder law in college, I took a course called Death and Dying. Mm -hmm. And so in that. Who you, names these courses? Well, it was all about death. There's and dying. five people in that class. Five people. <laughs> it was jam packed. Actually, people fought me in it. It was part of the nursing school. Okay. Uh, not that I was doing nursing, but you could take it as an elective. Yeah. And they have you go through and you know visualize your funeral, and you kind of make a packet of what you'd like if you died. And I thought that was so interesting. And I've been meaning to get around to doing that again, because I think, you know, if my husband suddenly died, I would want to know how he would want to be celebrated. Yeah. And yeah. I wouldn't, in my grief, I wouldn't want to forget something or, you know, right. does he want to be cremated? Does he want to be in the ground? Uh, does he want to have a religious ceremony? Does he want me to do whatever, you know, um, and to have something in his own writing maybe that directs me would be really helpful and comforting at that time. So I was just yeah. thinking about that as we discuss, is that Jana, is that something that you talk with your clients about making a funeral plan? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, a lot of them will do You're way too young to know this, but you can prepay your burial or your cremation. And so a lot of my, you know, like retirement age clients and on go ahead and take care of that so that their kids don't have to deal with that. When, when they've passed away. But what you're talking about, giving detail about a service, beautiful, so nice. What a nice gift to leave for somebody. And then the other thing I would say is maybe um, put in writing or long discussions about kind of what you each want for yourselves health-wise and with like your in-laws, because your job is, if you take on the job of being a surrogate for your husband or for your in-laws, your job is to put yourself in their shoes. What would they have wanted in this situation? And the more you talk about those things, the more you can feel like you're honoring your in-laws. You know, if you're like, well, they always told me that if this happened, they would not want extraordinary measures to be kept alive. Instead of killing my in-laws, I'm honoring them. You know, it's a, right. it's another real gift everyone can give each other to be really clear about what it is you want for yourself and then you've given them peace you know in doing that for you i love that and i yeah. like that you call it a gift i'm thinking christmas presents this year we're all <laughs> going to estate planners <laughs> <laughs> that's nowhere near as fun as giving everybody a 23 and me dna kit at christmas oh, <laughs> although that can lead to things probably a lot of elder law issues. Have you ever had that happen, Jana, where someone Absolutely. all of a sudden goes, I got a sibling out there somewhere. Yeah. I just had to revise a will to exclude a purported sibling. And I just, I a funky case, but a guy died of COVID in the last two years. And right after he died, a daughter popped up. She had found him through 23andMe but the widow, who is not the mother, I mean, she would have known there was a child out there, has taken that young woman under her wings and just put her in her will. What a lovely she, person. 
lovely. She's a lovely person. He never had children that he knew of during his lifetime, nor did she. So they have this beautiful relationship because of that genetic. Oh, lovely. That's a, that's a good ending. That's a good ending to a 23 and me surprise. You know, yeah. Those yeah. don't show up on Netflix at 2 a.m. when I'm looking around. The ones I see at uh, 2 a.m. at Netflix, that is somewhere yeah. real south. Yeah. <laughs> Ancestry.com ruins somebody's life. Yes, absolutely. Kia, what are you thinking about? Probably something that a lot of people out there are thinking about is how do you avoid estate taxes? Hmm. Well, yeah, I want to know about that. How do you how do you manage that? And then what is this thing about like you can give away so much money while you're alive per year? Tell us all about money, tax evasion of your money. (laughs) Right. Just knowledge. Um, Yeah. So right now, everybody can leave each individual can leave a little over 12 million dollars in assets and not have estate taxes assessed. So, you know, the great majority of people don't have to consider that. Uh, the number is going to drop at the end of uh, 2025, and it'll still be about $6 million per person. So if you're looking at a married couple, you know, double that. So estate taxes aren't a huge deal um, for a lot of people, but, but are for some. And we need to, and we're starting with some of like my higher net worth folks, we're having to start planning for 2025, flipping to 2026 yeah. um, because it'll be reduced. But, um, and then gifting, you can gift yeah. a certain amount um, each year to many individuals as you want. And the amount this year is $16,000 without having to report that to anybody. So Dana, you could give gifts to everybody at your office of $16,000 and oh, you don't. Good. I was hoping I could do that. Just wanted, just wanted to let you know. Oh, Dana. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So without having to report any of those gifts, and once you give gifts in excess of that amount, I mean, this is all very general rules, but generally yeah. you have to report gifts larger than that to the IRS. And then that will, what that does is it reduces the amount you can leave at the end of your life. So the gifting exemption amount and the estate tax exemption amount are tied. So if you gift $100,000 to every member of your staff, you just have to tell the IRS that you did it. No, no taxes, but okay. it's going to reduce the amount. And again, this is all loose. Don't take this to the bank. Talk to your CPA, et cetera. But uh, generally that reduces the amount you can leave estate tax free at the end of your life. Now, what is your estate for purposes of it being taxable, I would assume that's your, um, is that the amount of money after you liquidate things? What if you keep something in its, in its current structure, either a, you know, a holding real estate, whatever, and you don't turn it into cash? Um, how does that work? Is it all, is it only things once they become cash or is it just the value of whatever asset? It's basically, again, this is super, super broad in general, but basically everything you have dominion over and when you die. So, it, you know, certain types of trusts you aren't considered to have dominion over, certain types you are, certain types of entities get um, discounts because they're restricted and how you can use them. But basically, yeah, it's not just cash. It's every asset has to be valued on your date of death, basically. Gotcha. Anybody else got some questions before I start hogging this? <laughs> so how would it, because, you know, you have so many people that don't go into doing estate planning because they look at it as this is only for the wealthy, right? Right. For anybody that owns land or houses or something to that extent. But how or what advice I should say would you give someone that's saying, hey, I just need somebody to take care of my mother? you know, when I pass away or something, how would they go about doing that? And you know what, also too, how much should people think this costs? Is this accessible to the average person? Or is this something that unless you've got, you know, two or $3 million, it doesn't really, it isn't really worth your time. Right. I mean, it's very dependent on your situation. I mean, I, what I will tell a lot of people is, look, if you, what the, what the law says, if you die, I, um, Kimmy referenced this initially, you know, if, if she died with nothing in place in her family situation, everything 
under a, a an estate would go to her husband and that's what the because law they have children together but if she had children with somebody else it might be a different deal right that's right if that's you, exactly. you go purse derbies is that what you're talking about yeah so then it would be like half the spouse half the kid it changes depending on your family situation but dana so like for you if you had absolutely nothing in writing and we had to probate your estate when you passed away everything would go to your daughter which is what you want right i mean you You'd like to put it in uh, some sort of or an NPR. I just I will if I die without giving money to NPR, I will never be able to rest comfortably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But get in my head with that. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, the law would not give a gift to NPR. They would just give it, you know, in an estate. It would all go to. So sometimes, for some people, like say my husband dies, I do want everything to go to my two kids. Not quite yet, but they're not quite ready for it. But, but, you know, not a tragedy. If I died without a will, it would go to the people I wanted it to go to. So, you know, maybe it's, it's okay for some people. It's probably, you know, not what an estate planning attorney is supposed to say, but for some people it works out okay. But, but really it's that power of attorney is so like key. If you're like, I just need somebody to take care of my mom if you don't, if she doesn't have a power of attorney and like you're on all of her accounts, you die. She has nobody who can access those to help pay her bills or check her into an assisted living facility or whatever it is. She's really stuck. And again, somebody would have to go to court if she's lost capacity. So that powers of attorneys sometimes can be the most important document. Now, I wanted to ask you about that, like a power of attorney, what does that give the other person the authority to do versus a healthcare surrogate? What is a living will versus a will will? Yeah. So power of attorney is the financial fiduciary. It's anything you can sign and do that impacts property rights. It's kind of a broad way of putting it, but it could also be like if I, if you lost capacity, Dana, and you needed somebody to go change your mailing address at the post office, uh-huh. that's somebody, an agent, agent is what we call people nominated under a power of attorney. That's what your agent could do. Sign your tax return, sell your house, yeah. uh, deal with. What, is that a durable? Is, is that what you mean by durable? Because you can limit the powers you give them, correct? Yeah. So you can have a springing. I don't want to get into law school, you know, prep for the bar type of a thing, but it seems to me like you can, I think a lot of people get afraid when they think they're signing something to give somebody authority. Cause they're like, I only want you to have this authority if I really am incapacitated, but the minute I'm back to capacity, I want my, my decision-making back. You know, I, I don't want, I want you to be able to do certain things, but I don't want you to be able to wreck me because, you know, I'm, you, I may not trust your judgment that much. I don't know. And then I wonder also what the check is on these people that we give this authority to. Yeah, I mean, there's no power of attorney police out there. So you really have to trust. Again, you're, you're only supposed to use it for the person's good. You're only supposed to reflect their planning. But, you know, like I said a while ago, you can't unshoot the gun. If somebody misuses it, it's really hard to go back and undo sometimes what they've done. But to your point, Dana, we we used to have, and that's really cool that you could pull out that springing power of attorney language. But um, that I'm impressed, but that's gone about 11 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it really is impressive. That's amazing. But, um, we don't have that anymore. So (laughs) yeah, the legislature took the last thing to remember. Yeah, exactly. So when you sign a power of attorney, it's a live document. So, um, it, it, what is important to understand, I guess, is that you're not giving up any of your rights by having signed it. You're just duplicating the rights. So, you know, I can still do everything. I'm still the boss of my stuff. You know, if my husband's named, he's only supposed to do what I want him to do with that. But it's there's nobody watching, you know, and, and people have to accept that document. So you really have to make sure you trust People and sometimes people just don't want to sign them because they don't have anybody they trust in their lives, and I, I understand that too. You can know? they be limited in scope and duration? Yeah, they can be both. So durable is I sign it. If I lose capacity, it's effective till the moment I die. But you can do a general power of attorney, and that stops if you lose capacity. I don't really know why you would do that, and you can limit it. And again, if if I don't put something in like that changing of your mailing address, 
example, okay. if it's not in your power of attorney, the person can't do it. So you I could see. very specifically give, like you could give your law partner some powers that are very limited to your business only. And that's a fine power of attorney. That most I'm thinking about do. like, what if I want to go into space? You know, and I want to have, hey, don't laugh at me, Kia. I'm not, I'm not. I'm sorry. sorry. The minute I get through astronaut training, I bounce. I'm out of here. You, I, no, I think, I mean, just anything. But I mean, I, what I worry about is once I give it to somebody, how do I get it back? Right. You know, are they going to fight me on whether I uh, regain capacity? What if I just feel like I need to check myself into someplace and get my head straight and wellness and I want to go all in and I want to say I am not at my normal capacity. I want to give somebody control over my affairs, but I expect to regain capacity and come back stronger. Uh, how do I make sure I can do that? Well, I mean, you know, you only sign it uh, when you have full capacity. So, you know, you wouldn't necessarily do it when you're, when you have a lack. So, but, but if you, you can always change your mind, you're never locking yourself into this document. So if a year from now, I, I'm worried about my husband, I can, I have to revoke it in writing, you know, okay. either by signing a new one or putting something saying I revoke this document, but it's as easy as that. And he can't use it anymore. I have so, a question. So are you, cause you're not filing the power of attorney with the court, right? So yeah. what's to keep them from just using the one you previously signed? No one knows it's been revoked. No one knows. Well, you got to disseminate the writing. So if I know that I have accounts at Truist and an investment account with Vanguard or whatever, you know, I need to make sure they each have the document saying that's been revoked. Okay. So anywhere they can go. It can get so it. hairy. Yeah. It can get so hairy. It, it's I not, like it doesn't it. happen often. I know. I, I see that. I mean, people just don't, some people don't want to do it. And, and when you explain, look, the, the alternative is if you don't do it and you have a stroke or something happens to you, um, then, then everybody's going to have to go to court to oversee your assets. Some people say, great, that's fine with me. I want a judge overseeing the process. So that's, but that's not really what happens though. The judge doesn't like oversee it. The judge appoints somebody to kind of be in control of it, right? And then, um, if they and then it's up to somebody else to challenge whether that person's exercising appropriate control and bring it before the judge. The judge isn't going to fly spec everything that person does. A lot. I mean, they have to do accountings that have to be approved by the judge and they have to ask permission for a lot of things if they've got a guardianship going, which is what that would be to get the same, to get the equivalent powers. But to many people that, especially the ones like, I know you trust your daughter, so you would put her, you know, with lots of don't ever misuse this, but, um, but there are honestly people out there who don't have a person in the world that they trust. Yeah. And so that's a fine option. No, I trust her. I, I just, I'm not so sure that I trust her trust of other people. And right. so I think to myself, you know, here's this, young woman who's going to be a target for a lot of unsavory characters should she quickly come into a lot of money. So I kind of wanted to ask you about that. Like, um, are, are they called spendthrift trust or how do you, how do you give money to somebody, but make sure they don't have too much, uh, too young of an age, uh, all that you, you help with that. Correct. I do. I do. Yeah. Like for my own kids, they're, um, 21 and 19, but, we like if I if we go down in a plane, we're going to be on in a couple of weeks. Everything goes into trust for them with rules about what can be spent. My brother would oversee that money, and then we both said when each of them turned thirty-five, they can become trustees of their own trusts. Yeah, still not in their hands, and there are rules about what the money can be spent on. And if they haven't had kids, they're each other's police because they get to watch what each other is doing because they're the beneficiaries of each other's trust. You know, if our son dies and there's money left, it would go to our daughter and vice versa. Gotcha. So they'll, it, you know, it's not a super healthy dynamic, but it's, it protects them from creditors. It might protect them yeah. from divorces. And if they are hemorrhaging out money to somebody, the other can say, you got to put that back in. You know, so there's a little bit of protection from having done that. And then if they have super successful careers, we've also maybe kept some money off of their 
that tally for them when we calculate estate taxes one day. So that's, that's what we did. That's, it can get complex. I hear you. It can get complex, right? Or some people just say, forget it. I know that that's protective. Just give them all the stuff and let them figure it out. Is a healthcare surrogate the document that tells your healthcare providers what you want happening to your healthcare, how you want that directed, should you become incapacitated and unable to communicate that clearly to them? Yeah, it can be. And actually, I, I didn't answer one of your questions before about what a living will is. Uh-huh. So the, um, the living will is an advanced directive about end of life. So that would give your wishes if you can't communicate anymore and are actively dying from something incurable or your brain dead. So that, that part of your healthcare directive could do that. But then the remainder of it really is saying, these are the people who get to make decisions for me if I can't. And these are the powers that they have. And that's kind of where you need to have communicated with those folks about what you want in certain situations. Because if you're not actively dying or you're brain dead, it's really not something we can put in writing. It flips to the people to, to be your voice. Mm-hmm. I got one more question. And then I want to turn it over to, um, to our, our panel and make sure they understand it. But how does it work? legally at hospitals, hospice, these kind of places. What, I mean, do they have legal departments? Because when I was help, trying to help this family, you know, I felt so bad for the, you know, charge nurse, the director of nursing, the risk manager, all these people, because they're getting fervent pleas, you know, from these people going, look, he wrote this. He doesn't want, they've been estranged for years. She's never cared for him. I mean, how could you let her come in here and make these decisions? Mm-hmm. And um legally, from my understanding, because I had another lawyer involved in helping me with this, who's got a hell of a lot more experience in this than I do, but it sounded like the hospital and the hospice people got it right, as sad as it is, it sounds like they got it right, but what's your experience with them, and, and when you come up to a risk manager at the 11th hour in a hospital and you show them a document, how does that actually work? Uh, you know, I don't, I haven't had the situation, Dana, you're describing because if there are clients, we typically have the document. You we know, already have it. Yeah. Right. But I would imagine some people maybe come to you when it's too late to. Yeah. They like, do want, want you to work some miracles and you're like, yeah, yeah, that's a really hard conversation to say, I can't, I can't, I'm sorry. And we've definitely had people, you know, bring people into the office and we've had to say, I I can't help you. We've had people saying, mom wants to give everything to me. She's going to tell you that. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, your mother doesn't know where she is. You know, we, you have hard conversations. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's very sad. Jana, when they come in, so y'all are having to judge whether they have capacity or not, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Do you have a checklist that you go through to determine whether they have capacity? Yeah. How do you ascertain that? Yeah. I mean, you, it's rough because you're right. I mean, I'm not a medical person, so I have to make my best judgment. I know what the level of capacity is that's required for a will. You know, they need to be able to articulate what their assets are, who their family is, what their plan is. Um, and you can have a moment of lucidity and that's enough, even if they forget, you know, the next day that they saw me. Hmm. Um, but a lot of people can't come in and, and articulate even kind of those basic things. And then so Oh, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that statute? That's by statute. They have those lists of what they have to articulate. I, I think it's case law. I'm not sure okay. that's set out in statutes, but that is the standard. And then for powers of attorney, it's a it's a little bit higher. You have to have a level of capacity that you need to execute a contract. So, do you understand the terms? And so that's even harder. I didn't know that. I didn't know that's there was saying- any difference between those two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that would be saying like, this is the contract, explain it back to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a really good way of ascertaining. We'll say that, like, what is this, what do you think you're doing here? And what do you want to sign? And, and it's hard. But, but again, if this is not done with legal effect, you can't just show up with a bunch of video or a bunch of handwriting and stuff and expect them to take that as a, a bona fide will or, or legal document. Right. 
Right. We have some that's, pretty- that's what I think is so sad. I think people, it's almost like parole evidence, you know, people are like, yeah, I know I signed that, but you don't know all this stuff they were telling me and all the emails and texts we had going on. You know, right. the, the law is looking at the contract that you entered into and your capacity to enter into it. So I just, I, it's heartbreaking to me because I think most people walking around feel like if there's plenty of evidence of what the person wanted, surely that's enough. You know, people are reasonable. They'll do the right thing. Yeah. I mean, and, and written, uh, you know, I don't want to be on life support, like things that are articulating what you want as far as healthcare decisions, that could be okay. That that could be enforceable, but naming the people, you better have two witnesses or you're out of luck. Kia, what are your final questions or thoughts today as we're wrapping up? So I have like a two-part, kind of going back to when Nina talked about durable power of attorney. Um, are those a part of, you know, a core planning, you know, part or core planning documents that people need to know about if there are some? And then also not necessarily, and, and I want to kind of make it a common core theme talking about dementia when it comes to that. Um, because that's a big deal um, with a lot of people, Alzheimer's, dementia, and everything we're talking about, it kind of falls in line to that. And then also even going, this is the second part, um, what is the ladybird deed and should we have one? Not Ooh. talking about the first lady. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. And that's a great question. Yeah. Okay. Well, that uh, in my second part of my two-part answer to Kia, I will cover that. Um, so yeah, power of attorney, definitely part of a, you know, will or trust. There's, you know, depend whatever your when I die documents are, and then your lifetime documents, power of attorney and some sort of healthcare directive really are crucial and part of, should be a part of everybody's uh, estate planning packet or whatever they get from their attorney. Um, so a ladybird deed is, um, it's a version of a life estate deed, which the, the traditional version of this, and um, Dana and Kimmy will remember this from law school, is I, I give you my, my house, but I hold back a life estate in the property. So that means I can live in the property, I'm responsible for the bills as long as I'm alive, but I really gave it to you already. So it's your property. So if I try to go sell it, you have to join with me in the sale. You get most of the money because really, you, depending on my age, but you get most of the money. So that's a traditional life estate. So a ladybird deed is an enhanced life estate. And that is a type of deed where you say, look, I'm holding on to this property till the moment I die. But when I die, it's going to you. And okay. so that does a few things. If you're applying like for Medicaid benefits for nursing home, it's not considered a transfer. Um, it, it, if I go to sell the property during my lifetime, I get to keep all the money. It's not your, you know, there's a, a number of different reasons. To do it. So um, anyway, it, it can be great. It's a, that's a long conversation about when it's appropriate and when it's not, but sometimes it's great. So when we're dealing with dementia, would that be something that people should enter into the ladybird deed? Maybe. Okay. Yeah. It's going to be fact specific, I guess, to, to yeah. what's going on with that yeah. person. It's really, you know, I, yeah. I, I hear about it so much um, over the years when friends of mine who's who lost one parent and the other parent remarries and they will give that new spouse a life estate. And yeah. so whenever the, the remaining parent ultimately dies, they want to kick his wife or her husband out and sell that property and get right to it. Um, and it could get real ugly. Yeah. Uh, I guess yeah. that can all be dealt with in the instrument that makes that conveyance of the life estate and what the terms would be. I'm sure they don't have to leave that day, do they or do they? I don't know. I, do. I guess it kind of depends on what the ownership situation is, but you know, the, if the parents just get married, which sometimes happens, you know, mom dies, dad's super lonely. He marries the first lady yeah. who showed up with a casserole kind of thing. Yeah. You know, they didn't do a prenup. She's got rights to that homestead. That's her marital home. Yeah. That's her marital home. And she can, can have kick her out of her marital home or she can get half of it. It just by, I mean, five minutes after they got married, if they didn't have a prenup. So yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So you could handle that with a prenup or you can handle it with a conveyance, I suppose. Yeah. You could waive your homestead rights within a deed now too, but you got to do something affirmative. See how complicated it is? You think you're just going through life, getting married, buying a house, you know, having kids. Oh my gosh. You could, you could just leave a wake of litigation and uh, internecine personal conflicts in your wake. You just really could. I, I, it's so important to think about it. But hey, before we go, I want to talk about Brittany now. Do you ever have this come up where people are just going, this hooker is crazy. She should not have her own money. Somebody ought to step in and take care of her. Uh, I hate it because of the sexist nature of it. You know, nobody did this to Justin Bieber. Nobody this, did this to Martin Lawrence. It's, a, it's infuriatingly Absolutely. offensive to me. But does this happen in real life very much where someone just comes in and goes, this one's just got too many people in her ear. She's too immature, not enough life experience. She's got a lot of assets. Save her from herself. Yeah, I mean, yes. I think maybe the biggest parallel we have with people we see is some element of mental illness, which I think is probably present with her. I mean, I don't know a lot about the case. I've read some, but... um, it's hard and you have to talk to families about, I know you see the, a little bit of erratic behavior, but it's going to change. It's going to wax and wane a guardianship, which is our conservatorship is not a great tool for folks who are struggling with some sort of sort of mental illness. Do you really want to do this? You're going to ruin your relationship and it's going to be a bad fit. And and how do you get out of that? Once, once something like that happens, because here, here I'm a medical malpractice lawyer and I know this, you go get a, an expert who says this, I'll go get an expert who says this, let's get real. So, I mean, it's, it's who the judge is going to believe. And that's not an immutable fact. That right. is a, I mean, your mental health is all, you know, that is not static. It changes. It's a very dynamic thing, given your, the people who are in your ear, your environment, um, what you're doing. You know, you can step out of your ridiculous fame that you acquired at age 14 and start living a normal life. And you should be able to have full uh, ability to make decisions for yourself. But how hard is something like that to get out of once a judge has determined that you're not acting in your own best interest? Yeah, I mean, it's not awful. And we've had a variety of people do it. You do you do a suggestion of capacity, it's called. And you're right. You get a doctor to say this person's fine. And that's why it's a bad fit for mental illness, because sometimes you're fine. Sometimes you're not. It's not like a dementia patient who's going to continue to deteriorate. So it's kind of a, it's locked in a little bit better. So it's really, it's hard, but you know, it's, it's rarity that you have somebody and and again, I'm not making a judgment. She may not have, but you know, there may be some mental illness there, but to have somebody so successful and wealthy, but also where there's a concern about capacity, she is a real rare bird. Yeah, it just offended me because so much of it was just situational. You know, you remove her from that environment, she was probably going to level out just fine. Great. Um, yeah, agree. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, I was it was so great to have you, uh, Kimmy. Do you have anything to uh, end with before I talk about how special Jana is as a good friend to a good friend of ours? No, no, I don't. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you. Great talking to you too, Kimmy. What about you, Kia? Any parting thoughts or uh, questions? Thank you so much for, you know, serving an underserved area of law. Um, And we thank you so much for being on. Thanks, Kia. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Glad to have you in Florida where we all come to uh, (laughs) live out our golden years. No, you are a good friend to uh, our law partner, Betsy Brown, and she talks about you always. And the one thing I know about you more than I know about your elder law uh, career is that you are somebody who will go to chemo with somebody and be there to ring the bell and be there whatever uh, she needs you the most. You're an exceptionally good friend and good person and your reputation uh, precedes you in all those aspects. Uh, and it speaks so well of you. So thank you for loving somebody we love. Yes, I, appreciate it. I do love her. What's happening? Yeah. Well, it's, it's easy to do. It's yeah, easy to do. To help her. Yes. <laughs> She, she's a, a A-plus top-notch human. So, and we're talking about our law partner, Betsy Brown, uh, who could not be here today. Um, she's off doing something funner than this, if you can imagine. <laughs> so uh, thank you, though, Jana, 
uh, thank you for being here. You're a treasure in our community and you've helped so many people and I know you'll continue to do that. You help our clients and we're grateful to you for that. Thank you, Kimmy Hogan, for being with us again today. You ask such insightful questions as you always do. Thank you, Kia, for your contribution. Uh, you're always thinking about things that uh, the rest of us may not think about or are experiencing because we get so caught up in this little law bubble. You know, you need to have people who are not practicing lawyers remind you of uh, how the real world works. And uh, thank you for your contributions always, Kia. But uh, this has been another wonderful episode of the Empower Hour brought to you by the Empower Plant by Facing Brooks. And we will see you next Thursday at 4.30 Facebook Live. And you can catch this anywhere you catch your podcast, Amazon, uh, Wondery, uh, Spotify, wherever. Catch us whenever it's convenient for you. And we will see you next week. Goodbye, everybody. Mm-hmm.